This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 550. And the quote of the day is, don't compare your path with anyone else's. Your path is unique to you. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey yo, what's going on everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 550 of the podcast. Can't believe it. And if this is the first one you've ever listened to, thank you. I appreciate you. If you've listened to all of them or somewhere in between, I appreciate you as well. This this podcast would be nothing without people like you listening. And it also wouldn't be possible without people like Dream Symbols who support it. And if you've heard me talk about it before, they released a dark matter symbol where they actually create the symbol by firing the symbol in the oven, then hand hammering it, then dropping it into salt water, and then they refire it, and then it comes out and it gets treated with a bliss-style lathe on the outer edges. And the feedback has been so great from the 21-inch Dark Matter ride that they've released an entire Eclipse series that you definitely want to check out. So they have a 15-inch Eclipse hi-hat, a 17-Eclipse crash, a 19-inch Eclipse crash, and a 23-Eclipse ride. We're talking serious sounding symbols. Check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com. And guess what? They're not going to break the bank. So check them out. Go to dreamsymbols.com. They've supported this podcast for a very long time. And I, all I ask is that you, you, know, you help support the companies that keep this podcast free. And other than that, we're going to get into this conversation. And this is with Michael Baker. And if you listen to the last episode that I did with E-Man, he talks about a drummer named Michael Baker. And this is the Michael Baker that we were talking about, not the <laughs> drummer for Whitney Houston, which he, funny he, funny enough, he said he gets confused for him a lot. He gets phone calls uh, for people who are looking for that Michael Baker, but a different Michael Baker. Um, this Michael Baker plays with Gavin DeGraw. He's played with Colby Calais. He was with Andy Grammer. And E-Man actually replaced him on the gig because he went to go play with Gavin DeGraw. It's a crazy story, but after the E-Man interview came out, Michael reached out to me and said, hey, man, you guys were just talking about me on this podcast. You know, I love the podcast. Thanks so much for for doing it. And I said, well, let's get you on. So here it is. The interview or conversation or whatever you want to call it with my man, Michael Baker. And I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it. Here it is. Michael Baker. Mike Baker, what's happening, brother? How are you? I'm great, man. How are you doing? I'm good. We were... uh, we were getting, we were already having the conversation, and then we're thinking maybe we should include this in the uh, in the actual record on the air, as they say. Um, yeah. So we, I guess we'll jump into it, and then I'll, I'll I'll backtrack a little bit and get a little bit of your backstory. But we were talking, you you know, you were like, okay, how did you start? And and I was telling a little bit about my story, and then uh, saying how it got to the point where I was in a band left the band, went solo, did all that, and then became a sideman, which I didn't really dig. And that's why I started Drummer's Resource and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. So, and, and and I felt like you were you were about to go into something when we were like, wait a minute, maybe we should we should hit the record button. So, um, so why don't we start there? Like in terms of in terms of being a sideman, um, and I felt like you you had some points that you were going to uh, to bring up. Yeah. I mean, just for yourself, like, I, I think it's, it's so great that you were able to figure that out, um, in a relatively short time. Uh, 
And instead of feeling defeated about it, you just immediately moved on to something that was more to your taste and more to your personality, um, more to your strengths, you know, and I, it's so important for you to figure that out sooner than later. So you're not like 20 years down the road, giving yourself to a goal that you, you can't be a hundred percent genuine towards, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Yep. So yep. yeah. Kudos, kudos to you. But it seems like to me, based on the co- you know the short conversation that we had, you are are you in a position where you feel like you want to move into that direction of sort of being more more in control of what you're doing and and I don't want to say less of a side man, but like but just having more control of of your career. Um, not in music. I actually prefer being a side guy. Interesting. Um, and it's kind of like yeah, it's kind of how you were saying. God, I wish I could like being a side guy. I wish I could enjoy being an entrepreneur. I'm just not that guy. Um, I never have been, but I've always surrounded myself, uh, around people like that. Got you. Got you. Yeah. So I think, you know, as we, as we move on later in life, I'm, I'm 41 now, um, as you know, the a family starts to grow or you're thinking about like, well, what am I going to do when I'm 65 or whatever? Then yes, in that regard, I, I definitely want to be in control of uh what happens there like financially where i live etc um you know and if if i continue to do what i'm doing now well then that'll um that'll help get me there it's it's interesting that you and i are sort of polar opposites about being a sideman not being a sideman what is it that you love about being a sideman um probably exactly what you didn't like about it i i i am very okay with uh not having to call the shots um I'm very okay with being able to show up and, and learn parts and, and be, be a character on stage if that's what it requires. Um, and then be able to walk off stage and kind of like go about enjoying the rest of my day or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I prefer that. Like, uh, being on tour is awesome just because I get to experience so many different cities, uh, all over the world. And I, like when I'm in those elements, I'm not necessarily having to think about numbers or, you know, uh, the meet and greet or, you know, what the labels, you know, breathing down my neck about, you know, it's just, it's not on, it's not on my radar. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I personally prefer that. And there's definitely something to be said about, you know, not taking work home with you. All right. So like yeah, you get done absolutely. and you're not laying up at night, like, oh my God, I hope that, I hope that, uh, the, like you said, the numbers are right, or I hope that, you know, I hope this, this next single does really well or whatever the case may be. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. That affects you if the single doesn't do well or the tour doesn't do well, but it's like, it's not you, it's not your career that's, that's riding on it. It's just your, your position in that gig. And you can always go get another gig versus like the owner of the company that if it fails, that's it, you know? Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, uh, I was, I did do the band thing when I was a late teenager into my early twenties and Mm -hmm. kind of got a feel for that. Nowhere near what you guys did at all. Like we cut one record and did like a three week tour. We mostly just rehearsed and played around the San Diego area. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that was like the majority of the career of this band. Um, but I, I got a pretty good, um, indication at that point, even in my, my teenage years that I just, I didn't want to be tied to that. Um, I felt more free when I was able to come in as an independent and, uh, and perform a task. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you, how do you, I think it's interesting or not interesting. I think it's important to understand how to start to make that transition because I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening that are in bands that actually 
that want to start playing with higher caliber higher caliber players and to me i think it's i think it's smarter to try to get in with a band or a group of people who are already doing it versus like going back to the drawing board and trying to start over again and trying to like start another band and try to get that to grow 100 um, so what's your advice on even if it's not making the transition from being in a band to to being a sideman but like getting more sideman gigs or just starting to network in those in those areas because that's always the thing right it's like how do i get gigs how do i get more gigs how do i get yeah. out of like my local town to start playing with you know like how did you end up playing with you know Colby Calais or, or Annie Grammer or Gavin DeGraw or like talk about that stuff. Yeah. And it was all, I mean, for me, I, I grew up in San Diego. I was there for 13 years and um, that's where I started playing drums. I was playing in church then played in the band and then kind of put it down for a while and pursued other things. I was, I'm a big sports guy. I love basketball. So I was, you know, focusing way too much on that stuff. And um, eventually when I, when I realized that I, I actually needed to make money and I probably wasn't going to do that at basketball. Um, I moved to Los Angeles with the intent of becoming a drummer. And, um, for me, I mean, I, I, I knew nobody, like I did not have the friends. I did not have the parents. I did not have a network, um, to get me involved or kind of give me that, that head start. Mm -hmm. Um, so my whole thing was, go to all the clubs. Like you have to be out in the middle of it. You have to be meeting people. You have to be seeing these bands. You got to go up and talk to these people and you got to introduce yourself. And you, um, can I, can I ask you a question about that? Um, yeah, of course. So what year are we talking? I moved in 2003. Okay. So, and the yeah. reason why I asked this is because if I think about 2003, where I was living, I'm in Philly or outside of Philadelphia. Um, and, Every, I, I, we would go to this town, Westchester, Pennsylvania, right? It's a college town. I, I and, played there. Yeah. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, and, well, I was going to say there's a, there's a lot of music there, but there's a, there were bands at, you know, just rattling off the clubs. They were at Vincent's, they were at Kildare's, they were at Spence Cafe, they were at Doc McGrogan's, they were at 15 North. They were, I mean, there was bands in every bar, which yeah. is not the case anymore. Right. Um, yeah, they're not, they're not paying anymore. Right. Would you would you change the approach now versus then? Uh, I don't think I would. Uh, I I mean I think there's still central locations, right? You still mm -hmm. have Nashville, you still have L.A. I think to a large degree, you still have Minneapolis. Um, mm -hmm. Minneapolis is still a, a great city for music. Um, New York, I I just I don't have the experience there. I know that there's still a lot of Broadway stuff, and there there is an underground thing happening at like New York's at like tough, Rockwood. Man. It's really tough. It's, I lived there for, yeah. for, uh, I lived in Hoboken, but, um, some, you know, right across the river and it's just, it not only is New York ridiculously expensive, but like every, everywhere you go, you got to carry all your stuff on the subway and like yeah. most of the gigs are jazz gigs or they're, you know, they don't pay or it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. I remember, yeah. um, uh, Jason Sutter was like, you can't afford to be an artist in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I, I remember thinking about moving there and it was such a brief thought. I was like, I'll never survive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not for everybody, but coming from Southern California and like thinking about that weather and lugging around a drum set and like living in a closet for $2,000 or whatever. I'm like, I, I, I don't think, I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> right. That ain't, that ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, the networking thing, like 
being being in a place in like in Los Angeles in the the mid 2000s um it was ripe there were still bands playing um i think the kind of like the the singer songwriter uprising was really taking place after you know Mraz and Mare um Maroon 5's first album mm-hmm. uh there was a lot there was like an underswell of that stuff that was really happening so for um, that, that, that sense of community was, was really starting to take place at that time. Um, so it was kind of easy for me to ingratiate myself into other projects. Like, I think I even put ads out, like I said, I didn't know anybody at all. So I, like even putting ads out in music connection or whatever, like, Hey, I got drums. I can, I can, I can hit things. Right. Let's, let's, let's rehearse or, you know, whatever. Like I got a lot of gigs that way. Yeah, it's it's such an inner because I think about it all the time now, and I have these conversations all the time, and I'm like, man, how would I if I was 21? How would I do it now? And, yeah, and I think I think the approach would sort of be the same. Uh, you got to get into that scene. You got to be playing in that area. Like, I uh-huh. I don't I don't think that you're just gonna walk into into bars and like start meeting people and start getting hired for gigs. I think you got to either put a band together or you got to get into a band or like hire some people that, that you want to play with. And just, even if it's just getting on the scene, like there was a, there was this place Spence cafe uh, in Westchester that, that everyone played at, right. It, like the who's who played there. So I was like, we have to get into this bar. Like we just, yeah. we got to get a gig here. And once we got a gig there, you get to know the people at the bar. Then we get a residency there. Then I become the booking agent there. You know what I mean? And it's like you, you, once you, once you get your foot in the door, then you can, then you start meeting all the people. And, and I literally got gigs from bands who were coming to book there and like they were having an issue with their drummer. And I'm like, I play drums too, <laughs> you know? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that and, and got hired, you know? Um, yeah. But I think it's just like, you got to get involved, man. You have to get involved. It's really true. Yeah. What, however you can do it, you have to like, whatever your strengths are again, going back to like, uh, being the entrepreneur or just being the supporter or whatever, like whatever you feel like your strengths are going to be to get into that, that area. Mm-hmm. Um, you utilize them to your, to your fullest. I agree. How did, how did you get the, uh, the Colby Calais gig? <laughs> uh, it's it's the silliest game of pinball I think I've ever experienced. That's kind of like how I used to talk about my four years before I got the 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 touring gig with Colby. Is it was just a series of pinball games, man. Like you know, from this artist to this band to this weird coffee shop encounter. Um, I was working in Encino at a place called Drum Connection, mm-hmm. and it it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was like in, in Sherman Oaks, like across the street from the Ralph's and the Taco Bell or, or whatever, like really close to Cafe Cordial. I don't know if you ever went there when it was open. Yeah, yeah I yeah, love that I did. place so I much. Did. Yeah, I yeah. know. It just closed, what, like two, well, I guess it was a while now, two two years ago, three years ago. Four, yeah, four, five, yeah. Peter May was so wonderful with, with everything. He brought the best talent in and it was just, it was, you could learn Kung Fu every night if you wanted to. It was, mm. it was so rad. But um, yeah, I worked at this drum shop for a short period of time i think 18 months and and uh they had uh drum lessons in one of the back rooms and uh one of the instructors there were two incredible instructors there one of them was jeff friedel who Mm. now plays yeah who plays for uh you know perfect circle and and devo and beta machine uh he was one of the instructors and then this other guy sam aliano who's like a australian clinician he's like one of the most like technically 
proficient drummers I've ever met and seen in my life. Um, What's his name? Sam Aliano. I'm not familiar with him. A- Italian Aussie. He's just a wonderful human being. Great I like guy. It. I um, like it. Yeah. And he was giving lessons in the back, and I was realizing that I was a terrible drummer every time I got around him. I'm like, wow, this guy's really good. <laughs> um, and uh, we, you know, we would go out on occasion. He'd he'd be like, hey, Mike, you know, I'm, I'm going to see this artist, or I've got a gig with this with this uh, fellow or whatever. Like, do you want to come out and see? So, you know, I would come out and and go to some of those shows. And one of them in particular was a singer songwriter named Ruby James, who I I think lives in Austin now. And uh, she had a gig coming up um, that Sam couldn't do because he had just had a kid and he really wanted to take the kid back to Australia to introduce him to his parents. Mm. So Ruby calls Sam up. Hey, I got a gig. And Sam's like, oh, man, I can't do it. But um, how about you take my buddy Mike? So I did. I did these shows with her and the shows were, you know, they were just kind of like they were dates or whatever. And uh ruby ended up getting a phone call a week later from a guy who's kind of like an emergency uh situation i really need a drum it's like a sunday afternoon i really need a drummer my guy backed out on me um do you know anybody and ruby was like well my guy sam's out but i just used this guy mike baker that you should give a shot nice so i get a phone call it's literally 113 degrees on a sunday afternoon (laughs) in in north hills california and i am working a construction job at the time. Like it is Yikes. blistering hot outside. And uh I was like sanding these really big pillars for a for a, a pergola, like a um uh outside covering. And I get a phone call from uh Ruby James and she says, Hey, my buddy just called me. Um can you grab your drums and and be in Thousand Oaks in an hour and a half? And I looked at my boss and he he knew my situation. Like he knew what I was trying to do. He's like get out of here, go take a shower and and get to thousand oaks as soon as possible. That's awesome. So I raced out there as fast as I could. Um, and I did these three songs for this guy and it turned out fine. And, um, it just so happened to be, um, Michael blue was the engineer for this session. The guy had just rented out the studio because it was close to his house. And Michael was in there as the house engineer. Um, and so he did the session and, and he, after I get done, the artist leaves. I, I'm like about ready to break down my drums. He goes, hey, Mike, um, would you mind sticking around? I'm, I'm working on this project with this female singer-songwriter that I, I think you could be um, great to, to lay some drums down for. Nice. And it turned out to be Colby. Nice. nice. It was just, it was so freakishly random how it worked out. It was Ken Calais' studio. He was renting it out to Michael um to do some of his stuff that he was engineering and producing for and just it ended up being ken's daughter this this kind of like very innocent project that was happening and michael ended up crushing the production and uh so i got on there um victor victor and drizzo did most of it Mm -hmm. and um it was that was like the summer of 2006 um i think we did our first show in november of 2006 and you know i didn't quite understand i didn't really know what was happening i was still involved with other groups and um playing for different artists or whatever and then we got a call because her myspace profile i think jumped to number one um with her first single before it was even released on on a a major format yeah myspace i know rest (laughs) in peace um 
so but i got a phone call i think it was like uh, march of 2007 and it was her manager and he said hey we just got picked up for the goo goo dolls tour do you want to you want to just disappear for three months and i was like oh well here it is let's go let's do yeah. it and we we were gone for 18 months straight like it just it took wow. off we went around the world like four times it was like it was crazy the coolest part is that a lot of times whoever played on the record they don't call them and ask them to go on yeah the road, you know yeah and like again my situation it was so kind of like niche and um like it shouldn't have happened, you know, right, like right. Vic, Victor, Victor killed that session. And he kind of like, I think he started a whole new sound between him and Michael, I think started a whole new sound for, for what that LA singer songwriter thing turned out to be. Mm -hmm. um, like Victor got to do Sarah Burrell's second album too, and did the same thing with a little bit more pep to it, but still like same great sounds, um, same, obviously amazing playing and all that stuff. Um, and it, yeah, I was just the, the dude who was like, kind of like in the middle of all these heavyweight session guys. And I was young enough and, 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 and ready to go enough that they were like, well, Mike's clearly going to be the live drummer for this. So perfect. perfect. Yeah. How much, yeah. how much studio experience had you had before that? <laughs> very, very little. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could have done better to be honest. I, if I had a little bit more experience, I mean, that was kind of like a crash and burn, um, uh, test ground for me for sure. And, mm -hmm. and you know, listening back to what Victor did, I was like, Oh, that's <laughs> how you're supposed to do it. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I understand. That. Well, how did you, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about preparation leading up to that. Like, because as you know, the studio is completely different than playing live. Like everything is under a microscope. Um, yeah what what's some of the stuff that you were you were shedding or you were working on or 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 how did you really develop your your feel and your timing and and all of that stuff yeah i i mean i think that's the thing with the with the colby uh gig specifically like i was nowhere near uh what that sound was and what the vibe was i was playing in a hip-hop rock reggae group that was so high energy um and then I played it. I was playing in another reggae band. I was playing in a hard rock band. Like there was, there was no James Taylor going on in my life right. at all. So, I mean, Russ Kunkel and Jim Keltner were, were legends for sure, but I was not shedding that mm -hmm. at all. Um, my, my favorite records to shed to, um, prior to getting the Colby thing was like Kelly Clarkson's breakaway album, mm -hmm. because like at that time, I, I think the release was Oh two Oh three. Um, it was a, it was a perfect pop album and I knew that I wanted to play pop. Um, I wanted to play pop in a, in a touring capacity. And then the other one was just total essentials. Cause how can you get away from Jeff right. Picaro? Um, so I was, I was not ready for it. Long story short. Um, I learned kind of in the middle of it, um, the, the intricacies of the pocket and, and, uh, soft dynamics and really playing behind and, you know, supporting her in that respect. Was there a steep learning curve for you? Did you have, did you find yourself like after the shows or after rehearsals or whatever, having to go back and really shed some stuff heavy or, or like really internalize some things to make sure that, that you were, that you were one playing it correctly, but two, like setting yourself up for, for long-term success with the tour. Yeah, I think so. Um, listening again to like even some of the playbacks from TV stuff or, other recordings, um, making, making the adjustments necessary after hearing myself like, Oh, nope, that totally didn't work. Like, don't do that next time. Or, uh, 
the other humongous album that was out at the time was John Mayer's Continuum and, you know, Steve Jordan kind of like just flipping the script on, on groove. And, you know, so I was shedding that a lot, mm-hmm. um, just s- simplicity record. and fat snare sounds and, you know, just kick snare and hat and, you know, uh, the, the different dynamics of a snare drum. So yeah, a lot of that, a lot of my growth on that gig just happened in the middle of it all. Mm-hmm. Baptism by fire. Uh, Oh man. And it was too, like, <laughs> I probably, I, I made all the mistakes I could possibly make. And then I, I learned to live or le- learned to tell about, live to tell about it, which is great. Would you agree that that's the fastest way to learn though, is like getting thrown into a situation versus sitting at home, trying to shed and trying to, trying to anticipate the things that you're going to need or, or, you know, trying to, trying to like recreate the thing versus just getting on stage and doing it hundred percent. Yeah. You can, I can't, I mean, even still now, like I'll, I'll shed new material that I have to learn. I'm always learning the best when I'm in the band. Like I could have like shed the stuff for weeks straight, but the, the first rehearsal with the band or with the artist, um, I'm learning so much faster, you know, mm-hmm. yep. again, just the, the trial by fire, like all of your sensors are so alert to what's going on. And, you know, the dynamics around you and all that stuff. Like, I, I just don't think, um, and it's not all the time. Um, but I just don't think you can do that in your basement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe you have to shed. Right. And I'm, I I don't think that you're, you're not saying that either. So I don't want anyone to get, to get confused and think that we're saying like, Oh no, just figure it out on the bandstand. But I, but I do believe that that's where, that's where like the real growth happens. Like, I forget yeah. who said it, but they but they were like the only way you get better at playing live is by playing live. So uh, yeah, it's so true. You just got to get out there and, and play as many gigs uh, as you possibly can. So how? So tell me how that transitions into you playing with Andy Grammer and then leaving Andy Grammer and ending up with Gavin DeGraw. Like it, this is interesting. I think that people should know that. So I had E Man on the podcast who was Andy Grammer's drummer. And we talked about you in the podcast a lot because he, you had the gig before him. And then you reached out to me and you were like, Hey, I listened to the podcast. And you guys were talking about me. And I was like, well, let's get you on. Too. <laughs> so I appreciate you reaching out. But if anyone's wondering, it's, this is the Mike Baker that we were talking about, uh, on the last episode. Yeah, no, there, there was a, a break in between actually the Colby gig and the Andy thing. So I, um, that, ended the Colby thing ended for me in January, 2009. And just before then I had, I had been, uh, contacted by Orianthi's people. Orianthi mm-hmm. is, is an amazing guitarist. She got the opportunity to be the lead guitarist for Michael Jackson before he passed on the, this is it tour. And, um, before that she had gotten picked up by a label and she had recorded an album. Um, and I was fortunate to be a part of that band. And then when she got the, the MJ gig things obviously were paused. Um, so there was about a six month period from me not having the Colby gig and then kind of being in this weird, like what's happening with Orianti thing. Um, I did a stint with Alex band from the calling in Brazil, mm-hmm. um, in that period of time. Uh, and then as soon as Michael Jackson passed, uh, the green light, was on for Orianti. So we did about a year and a half, um, with her as well. So we did a big Adam Lambert tour, uh, called the glam nation tour in 2010. And we did summer Sonic in Tokyo, got to see like Stevie wonder in a soccer stadium and Taylor Swift, right. When she was about ready to, to blow up. And, um, that was incredible. And, uh, after that 
I did a short stint with the band called Red Light King, kind of like a hard rock outfit on Hollywood Records in 2011. Um, and then in the in the middle of that time period, I met uh, Andy's now wife, who was just the girlfriend at that point, and I was playing some gigs with her. And like the band was stacked. It was it was Drew DeCaro on guitar, who's in the house band for uh, Ryan Tedder's TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Zach Rudolph, who is Andy's musical director, and it was Fred Brown, who's Bruno Mars' musical director. Uh, so that, that that was that was Asia's band for a, a, a while, and Andy came out to one of those shows. And uh, he was still busking on the street. He didn't really have a touring presence yet. It was just finishing up his debut album. Hmm. Um, so I, in that crazy, period of time, right? like, I know it's it's nuts how I mean, Eman referenced it too, like all the the chips falling into place and how they do. You're like, how I could never engineer that. There's right. no way I right. could ever engineer how how things go down. But uh, yeah, so I met Andy briefly, and um, I guess what happened is is Andy talked to his manager Ben Singer. Um, and Ben was like, we need somebody who hits like Mike. If we're going to take this thing on the road, we need that guy. So hmm. I got the call and um, I was out with him as a trio. It was just me and Zach and Andy for for like six weeks opening up for the Plain White Tees and uh, uh, a band called Parachute. Um, and it was great. We were just in his little uh, SUV Tahoe, all of our gear, all of our nice. clothes, driving around the driving around the country, and, yeah, and man. just having a, it was it was very innocent, and I, I loved it actually. Being that's able to the step real away shit, from, though, man. Yeah, that's dude, like, it was it was cool. Yeah, I, I look back on that tour with such fond memories because I think the three of us uh, we had a lot in common already. We're all like super athletic guys. Um, we're all like pretty engaging, affable people um, socially. So it was. Uh, it was, I, I can't speak enough about Andy and Zach. Like they're just, they're, he, they're great human beings. And it was just a lot of fun to be in tight quarters with those guys. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a top of the line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. If you haven't already, check out Promark's Select Balance Drumsticks. What they did was take normal standard drumsticks and give players the ability to fine-tune that stick for their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, then you can use the forward balance. It's front-weighted, gives you more power and more speed. And if you're playing jazz or funk or gospel, then you can use the rebound balance, which is rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark. You know that you're getting a quality product because they control the entire process, from the forest to the finished drumstick. And they're also paired by pitch and by weight, so there's no guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. The interesting thing was uh, it gets skipped over a lot, and I want to make sure that we that we talk about it. Is oh sure the idea that 
you're like, yeah, you know, and then these people called me. And then after that thing <laughs> happened, these people called me, which this is the conversation that happens all the time. But so where, why are these phone calls coming in or, or where yeah. are they coming from? Right. Are they, is it, is it past relationships that you already had? Is it someone that you met on the road that is calling someone uh, and saying, look, you should talk to Mike about this thing. Uh, not that, and, and just so we're clear, I'm, this isn't me saying like, why are these people calling you? I don't mean it that way. I'm saying where, where did these relationships start? I think that's the thing that we tend to skip over a lot. Sure. Yeah. And it, like a lot of that has to do just with how you treat people, like starting from day one. Um, how do people feel when they walk away from you? You know? So I like, right. like the, even the Orianti thing, that relationship started with her, her then musical director back in 2005. And we were in a hard rock band together and I didn't speak to him for like, I don't know, three or four years. Hmm. And then I randomly got the phone call like, Hey, we're auditioning drums for this amazing guitarist. Do you want to come down? I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, but I, I hadn't talked to that person in forever. And then, um, I think Asia, uh, Andy's wife or, you know, girlfriend at the time. Um, I think I met her at a Starbucks, like by my house. Um, (laughs) What are the chances? Because she was going to CSUN and I, I used to live by Cal State Northridge and um, just randomly she was on her way to school and she's like, oh, I think I know you. Um, you know, we should keep in touch or whatever. And it like turns out like, I mean, the world just becomes really small, especially in those circles. Like turns out that we had a lot of mutual friends and that I had played with some of them already. And uh, yeah, so those relationships, they were all from years prior. Hmm. Like I think I met Asia in 2008, and I toured with Andy in 2011. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, is her name Asia? Like the like the Steely Dan record? No, it's. I mean, that was my first question too, but she actually spells it A I J I A. Got you. Yeah. Got you. I met again, I, like I wonderful human being. I don't know why I remember this, but I remember meeting a girl like year. I mean, probably 2000. And, uh, and her name was Asia. And I was like, are your parents Steely Dan fans? And she was like, yes, <laughs> they are. That's why they named me. I was like, that's an awesome yeah. name. <laughs> my, my buddy in, uh, this is kind of a sideways story, but my, my buddy, Tim Fagan, who was Colby's musical director for our first run was on an LA TV show with her. It was, they were just doing acoustic duo stuff and, and it was an LA, uh, news program, morning program. And the guy asked Tim, like Tim Fagan, huh? Any relation to Donald? And <laughs> Obviously, Tim had been asked that question a million times, and he goes, "Not yet, but I'm working on it." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's the way you do it." <laughs> yeah, soon, soon. Yeah, soon uh, to be. You know, DBD. I heard I heard someone talking about this the other day, and I don't remember where I heard. It. I don't know if it was a podcast or an interview or something like that. But oh, it was actually it was Scooter Braun who was talking about this. Uh, and for those of you who don't know Scooter Braun, he's like a he's a music mogul out here and owns a ton of different things and anyway um but he was talking about how he thinks that a lot of times a lot of people make the mistake of trying to network and connect with people who are like way out of their league uh versus like coming up with people together right so like if you look around like look at your inner circle right and you're like oh andy grammar and like his manager and all that kind of stuff but like you're like yeah but andy grammar wasn't andy grammar when I started working with him and Colby Calais wasn't Colby Calais when I started working with her, it's like meeting people where you are and then, and then growing with them. And I think people make the mistake of like, you know, instead of 
being like, oh, I don't want to waste the time with like the drummer or the guitar player around the corner where I'm thinking, well, if you're 20 and that and that guitar player is 20, that's going to be the person who is the musical director for the next big person in six years. You may want to be friends with them. Yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, I remember getting advice from an older guy like, "You need to get the Toto gig or whatever." I'm like, "Those those dudes are 50, man, and I'm I'm 25. Like, what? Right. They, right. There's nothing in common. Like, I would love to have that gig, but there's no way it's going to work, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> and I think oh, that is that what I need like, to do? Let me just call them and tell them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have all the same friends, right? Yeah, I'm sure no, nobody no. else wants that gig. <laughs> and, and and even that story. I mean, all those guys grew up playing. Like, you know, uh, Jeff and Steve were in high school together. Yeah. Like, that's yep. how that stuff starts. And I, even the guys that come out from Berkeley, they may be like powerhouses, but they were still shedding in a rehearsal room together at like one in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the organicness of it, just being in the middle of, of everything that's happening, um, again, at your level is, is so beneficial. Yeah. And it, like, not to say that you're going to have the guy who's picked up their instrument at, at, at three years old or the girl at three years old. And they, you know, they've been engineering their entire lives to get there and they put out a couple YouTube vids. And then Jeff Beck is like, uh, that's the one, right. you know, like that happens too. But the majority of the time, like, yeah, get, find your circle. Yeah. I think that 99.99% of the times it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, if that's your goal, like it's like shoot for the stars, but like also kind of <laughs> be real, be realistic. Well, I don't know. Matt McGuire did it too. Like he, he was putting YouTube videos out in Australia and now he's got the chain smokers gig. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it do, sweats, yeah, it's, but. It, I mean, it do, does it happen? Yes, it happens. Right. Yeah. But like, I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to go back to saying that 99.9% of the time it, that's not the way it happens. It happens because of the relationships that you built that are four, five, 10, 20 years old. And, yeah. you know, like, I mean, there's so many things that have come that have like come to fruition with stuff that I'm working on where people are like, oh man, you know, you're so lucky that this thing happened. I'm like, I've known that guy for 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Like before when he was like a fucking dishwasher at Applebee's. Yeah. You know, like it's not, it, it it's not like we just, you just call the person and you're like, yeah, Oh, you're huge now. Do you want to help me with this thing? (laughs) (laughs) And as humans, we're all, we're always looking at the result or seeing the result or, you know, hearing about the, the one in a million stories. You're like, okay, well that's probably what I should do. And you're like, well, no, no, no. Like there's a a much more natural way of going about this that, you know, requires a step-by-step process, but you can get there. You can Mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's just a matter of putting in that work. I, I, Ulysses Owens, who I had on the podcast, he posted this thing yesterday that I thought was brilliant. That was that was like people people fantasize about about the end goal, but they're afraid to do the work. And the work is yeah. the thing that avoiding you know the work is the thing that's going to get you there. The work that you're avoiding is the thing that you're going to get there. Is is the thing that's yeah. going to get you there. And uh, he said it a lot more eloquently than I did, but. Um, but it totally makes sense that, you know, I looked at, I, I read that and was like, it's so true, man. Everyone's like, how can I figure this out faster? Or or how can mm-hmm. I like just make the phone call to get picked up for the thing? And it just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, when people talk about the work that they put in to get there, like they found a way to make the work fun, which mm-hmm. 
again, like know yourself, um, know what is going to motivate you, um, to get your butt out there. Um, and, and, you know, make the success story for you. Do you find, do you find pleasure in the process? Um, I've had to kind of like engineer my way around it. Like I'm a very social human being and I don't, I don't really do that well when I'm by myself. Like I'm not an introvert. So Mm -hmm. for me playing with people is the best way that I can learn. Right. Right. If that makes sense. Like I'm not the guy that's going to discipline himself for five hours a day in the shedding room. Like, I'm sorry. I did it for a while because I really needed to get, um, uh, my chops up. Uh, so I kind of like, I did the, the five to eight hours a day for, I don't know, I think about two years, but mm-hmm. after that, I think after every, I got my touring gig, man, I think everyone has to do that, right? Yeah, you have to, there yeah, has to be so. a point like, in your life that you do that. I agree. I agree. I mean the, the whole 10,000 hours, the Malcolm Gladwell thing, like it's, it's not a joke. Like mm-hmm. You really do have to put the time in, but for me, like the the bet the like the sooner I can get out and and be with people and, and interact and and you know, kind of like learn you know be around different personalities and and engage in that way, like that's that's when I get inspired. That's that's when I do the best work. Mm-hmm. I I love hearing you say that that you had to you had to engineer around it because like you said, there are different people who operate differently. Some people can sit in the practice room every day for eight hours a day. or I look at someone like Mike Johnston. Right. And yeah. And he's like, he does all of that stuff himself. So he's doing yep. all of the recording. He's planning all the lessons. He's doing all of the, all of the editing, the color correcting and everything. This dude's in that studio for 10, 12 hours a day by himself. It's and amazing to, to watch him do what he does. He's an, uh, amazing. It blows my mind. Right. But like, if that were me, my head would explode. I would, I would die. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, wouldn't, no I wouldn't be able to do it. And I have so much respect for him, not only for what he's done, but the way that he's able to like, to, to keep that consistency going for 10 years. And it just gets better and better and better. And he's just like, he's the real deal, but someone who doesn't have that level of discipline or which discipline we could argue back and forth about the whole idea of discipline, because I don't, I don't really think discipline exists, but, mm-hmm. um, but but having but figuring out what he loves to do and and loving that process and the way that you are like it may sound dreadful to learn on stage to someone else so i totally agree with you this is a long way of me saying i agree that like you got to find out what works for you and and yeah capitalize on that yeah you could even say like if you don't you you just said you don't know if you believe in discipline but i you could almost replace the word discipline with passion like what are you passionate about like what mm-hmm. what can you spend hours at doing a day, you know? Right. Right. That, that's kind of like, that was my thing. Cause I, like, I react strongly towards like discipline or you have to be alone for a long time. Like I've just, I'm probably going to bow out. But if you talk about like, <laughs> Hey, this, you know, this is my passion and this is what I really, really enjoy doing. And this is like my goal that I, you know, I can't wait to get to or whatever. Then I'm in, I'm, right. I'm all engaged. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on a hundred percent of my time, my energy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I use sports sports references a lot on the podcast or or exercising uh you know comparisons and they you know I I read a lot that if you you know what exercises should I do with the gym and it's like you should do the exercises that you enjoy doing because yeah. if you don't enjoy doing them it, if you hate going to the gym right like you should yeah. do the exercises that you enjoy because if you have all these exercises that you hate doing it's just a bigger roadblock for you to get there so like 
if you hate sitting on the pad for three hours playing paradiddles, then you probably <laughs> shouldn't put that in your practice journal because you're only going to do it once or twice and then never do it again. So like, correct. Play, pra- play, you know, put a band together or like get a friend of yours and be like, hey, you play bass. I'm going to play a groove, but I'm going to play just paradiddles. And yeah, let's like let's practice that way together, or or play songs and play paradiddles with, or whatever it is. Like figure out what works for you. It's it's the only way I could sit myself in the room for that long. Like I remember, I was so thankful that he said this. Like watching the the Jeff Ricaro video um, that I can't remember when it came out. I think he's only got one of them though. Um, yeah. And then some of the interviews too. Like he just kept saying, "Play along to as many records." as you possibly can just mm-hmm. keep playing the records, keep playing the records. And I'm like, Oh, that's it for me. Cause I can imagine myself in that situation and, and being excited about, you know, playing these songs. Right. Meanwhile, I'm learning a ton of different grooves and different fills and different dynamics. And, you know, especially if you're listening to the great guys like that, like anybody like J.R. Robinson, if you're, if you're shedding along to his tracks, like you're probably going to start to develop some great time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So that that was just my motivator. Like I just wanted to play along to records and it was a very specific thing. I knew I wanted to be in a pop band. So I wasn't shedding like jazz stuff or metal or anything like that. It was, it was, it was pop. Right. Right. So, but I mean, that, that got me in there. The interesting thing about Jeff too, is that he, that I heard him say that he hated shuffles because he didn't feel like he played them very well. And like, that's insane. And walked out of a Steely Dan session. Like threw That's his insane. sticks against the wall and walked out because he was like, "This sounds like shit." And I'm like, "Man, that's so crazy to hear Jeff Picaro say that." And like, yeah, all we can do is try to emulate him and Bonham and Purdy on the halftime shuffle. That's all we ever want to <laughs> <Right>. do. <laughs> I just right. want to sound like those guys. That's all I want to do. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to switch gears a little bit because. I mentioned uh, before we got on the air that I, I sort of made a vow that I want to start talking more about sort of the business and the economic side of, of being a musician. And, and whether you do it full-time or part-time to me is, is irrelevant. Um, but we were talking a little bit about real estate and, and I've had conversations with other people about this. One in particular was uh, Jason Sutter, where he invests in real estate and things like that. Um, yeah. So talk great about- Great drummer. Great dude. Great dude. Yeah, for sure. And an amazing drummer. Um, so talk to me about like, about your long-term sort of thought process about, about playing drums as a sideman. And I say this a lot too, that you're probably not going to want to be on the road when you're 60, 70, 75 years old. So there has to be some sort of like contingency plan, right? Um, Yeah. So talk to me about the stuff that, that you're thinking about it at, you know, and you're young still, but you got to start thinking about it now. Yeah, I think so. And like, again, this conversation is not for everybody. Like, uh, the, I I did a stint with Cody Simpson, uh, opening for the Beebs back in 2013. We had some time off with Andy. So I took this tour and, uh, half the guys on Cody's team are millionaires right now because they were, they were lifers. And one, the, the musical director is Andrew Watt, and he was just nominated for producer of the year for iHeartRadio. Like, Mm -hmm. He just knew, like there was no contingency plan. This guy was going for broke. And, um, as soon as the Cody thing fizzled out, um, he moved to LA and just started like running the place. So I don't think that guy needs to worry about real estate investments, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? And 
I think his assistant uh, started like a, a management publishing company that immediately was successful with giant pop acts. So, and I think a lot of it was um, coordinated with the Scooter Braun group. So I know there was some help there, but these guys were so motivated. Mm-hmm. So kudos to them. Like I'm, I'm really happy for their success. But for side guys like me, like I knew I didn't really want to get into that world. I didn't want to get into production. I didn't want to get into like um, trying to be a, being a, a songwriter or anything like that. Um, I'm really happy with what I get to do. I love traveling. I love playing music. Um, I know it's not going to pay the bills for the rest of my life. Um, and I know that there's some people who love to mess around with the stock market. Um, that's not me. I just don't follow it quickly enough. Um, uh, and for probably for years, I remember like, even since I got the Colby gig, I was like, man, I I think I want to get into flipping homes. Like, it just seems like the the best way to um, have long-term investments for yourself like that, that market. I mean, even though we had a giant crash when we did um, actually right when I got the Colby gigs, when the crash happened, um, it's still the most consistent source of growth, I think mm-hmm. um, for, for, you know, personal investing. Sure. So yeah, I mean, uh, listening to different podcasts about inspired people that have have found their way in that market um, or in that industry, um, it just seems attainable and reachable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a whole lot to get started, which is great. Um, you know, you just need to put in a little work. I the the one thing that I hear from a lot of people in anything outside of this, right? Or let's say just like the business or the finance or the economic side of things. <laughs> People are like, man, I just want to play music. And it's like, okay, well, then find someone that can help you with this, right? right. Like if, you're, if you don't understand it or you don't want to spend time learning it or you don't think you're smart enough to learn it, which is a lie that you're telling yourself, but if you believe that or you're not interested in it or you're like, this is so boring to me, that's all fine. Then you got to find someone who you, who you trust, like a friend of yours or something, you know, that, that – can help you go down this road, right? Because like, mm-hmm. yeah, I love learning, but and and it sounds like you like learning the stuff on your own as well. But like, if you don't, you still got to figure it out. Yep, yep, correct. You know? And a lot, like for some reason, man, I, that that's always been my beef with that artists are like, man, I just want to, I just want to play. It's like, okay, yeah. well then, then play for free. You yeah, um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, it's like, then play for free and you can give me your money. When they're like, well, no, I want the money. And it's like, well, don't you want, do you want the money to last longer? Then you should, you know, you should be smart about it. Right. That's I agree. All. So you're referring to just having a mentor? I think, basically? That, I think that if you, if, like, let's take you, for example, right? What if you were like, if you were like, Nick, I realized that I should be, in saving my money some way or investing it somehow so that when I'm 50 and 60 and 70, I don't have to worry about where my money is coming from. And I don't have to take gigs that I don't want to do, or like, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to pay my bills. Yeah. I don't know anything about investing. I don't know anything about real estate. I don't know anything about money, you know, finances or anything like that, nor do I want to learn. Then I would say, okay, well then you need to find a, a, someone who you trust that can help you go down that road. So someone who already knows how to do it so that, so that you don't have to go and learn it yourself, but you need 
you have to do this. It just like maybe yeah. it's not you that does it, but someone has to do it for you. Yeah, that's all. Agreed. Agreed. You know, and there, I mean, there's there's great resources out there. Like we both talked about the Bigger Pockets podcast. That mm-hmm. guy, uh, what's his handle on Instagram? Beardy Brandon or something yeah, like Brandon that. He's Turner. so. He's so passionate about it and he's got so much information available um, and it's great. I mean, it's just, right. it's all there for you to just kind of like, you know, ingest and enjoy. Right. And if you don't, and if it hate, if you hate it and it sounds boring, then find someone else that, that can help you with it. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Call me. I'll tell you how to do <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Next, next, next job. Next, 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 next podcast is going to be uh Bigger Pockets 2. I was going to say, we're now announcing uh, the, <laughs> the, the Mike Baker, Nick Ruffini real estate investment fund. <laughs> Call us and uh, send us your money and we will invest it in real estate for you. Every open house has a live band. You're going to love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, like, I like where this is going. Yeah, uh, personal touches. So, so, what do you, so in terms of... Uh, um, touring now. So are you currently, you're not on the road right now, obviously we just talked about that, but so what are your plans, uh, for 2020? What do you have going on on the music side? Um, yeah, Gavin is just in process of making the next record. Um, it's been a, a a stint between the the last release he had was in 2016. That was something we're saving album. And we did a lot. Um, I think in 2017, we were gone for like seven months. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's kind of like subsided a little bit since then, but, um, yeah, we're waiting to gear up for, for the next cycle and, um, the next release. So it's, I'm going to be home. Is he on RTO records or ATO records? No, no. Was he ever? Uh, I don't, I don't really know the, I think it was just RCA for the, for the most part. Got you. Yeah. That was a random question and I'll. We don't need to. I don't need to explain why I asked. I, never mind. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. Um, yeah, we're just waiting. So, um, I'm at home doing local gigs. Um, I play at a church called Christ Church of the Valley. That's actually it was a hookup uh, through Steve Gould, who is an another uh, another amazing drummer, like uh, great like clinician teacher mm-hmm. uh, as well. Um, he's from the Minneapolis area and uh, just relocated out here uh, four years ago. Oh, cool. So. Yeah, doing that when I'm home and and really enjoying it and um, doing the one-offs when we have them. I like it. I yeah, like we're it. playing the uh, uh, the Universal out in Orlando. They've got a, a big live venue out there that we've done a couple times. So I always had a great time. Nice. I was just there, not not at the thing, but I was just in Orlando and there was all sorts of uh, what's that Disney World or Disneyland? I don't know. Uh, it's World Disney, Disney World, World out there. Yeah. yeah. There was yeah. all, all. I was there for a conference, but there was a ton of people there for, uh, for Disney World, which I've never been. So, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy out there. It's just land of uh, resorts and amusement parks. Yeah. Well, one of these days I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, where can people uh, follow you? Where's the best place to keep up with what you got going on? Uh, yeah, just on Instagram, Michael John Baker. Perfect. Yeah. Not to be confused with the other Michael Baker drummer. Which there is, there are stories behind that. I, the only time I ever get a phone call from Ricky Miner's office is when they're looking for the other guy. Really? <laughs> you're like, yeah, hey, yo, yeah, man, yeah. is this Michael yeah. Baker? Uh, it's not, not, not the one you're looking for. I'm, I really apologize. But the last time actually Ricky called me, uh, must have been two months ago. He's like, hey, Michael, it's Ricky. I'm like, 
Oh, <laughs> it's really good to hear your voice, man. I don't think you're looking for me, though. <laughs> he was like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, it's it's the other guy. It's it's the other Michael Baker. Does he know like, you're oh, a drummer? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, we've met. I've, I've done a couple of things just in his circle um, throughout the years. So, nice. Uh, yeah, it's we're definitely on good terms, but he's gotten a, gotten that phone call a couple of times. Like when Whitney Houston passed away, they were trying to scramble to find a band, and I got a phone call for that too. I'm like, I I just don't think you're looking for me, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. There's a uh, the so my buddy James Wormworth. I'll tell you this quick story. Uh, James Wormworth is a drummer, New York guy. He played. He was the house drummer, or he was the drummer for Conan O'Brien for whatever ten years or something like that. Uh-huh. And, and he gets a call to do this gig. It was like this cruise, uh, this cruise gig. And he was like, I thought it was kind of weird, but he was like, Yeah. So we went, and he like shows up, and they're like, Who are you? And they're like, He's like, I'm. He's like, I'm Worm. I'm James Wormworth. And they were like, We were looking for your dad. <laughs> because <laughs> his dad's a famous drummer but his dad's like 85 and he's like you know and worms like in his 50s <laughs> and he's like so i'm on this cruise playing with all these old heads playing jazz and whatever. oh so that's amazing he did the man. gig though <laughs> that's great at least he could pull it off that's yeah. awesome yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> anywho well uh mike i appreciate you man uh first of all uh, thank you for for reaching out to me it was kind of cool that you were like hey you guys were just talking about me so i thought it would, <laughs> it would be perfect to have you on uh right after e-man so uh i appreciate you reaching out i appreciate you listening and i appreciate you being uh being quickly available to do this we got it lined up pretty quick sometimes it takes months and sometimes it takes you know an hour to get everything lined up so right yeah i'm glad it worked out man i I really enjoy what you're doing likewise thank you man and uh let's stay in touch and if there's ever anything i can do for you man let me know yeah i appreciate it likewise all right brother be well i'll talk to you soon all right take care there you have it the one and only well maybe not the one and only but michael baker of gavin DeGraw, colby calais annie grammar great dude an amazing conversation, and we vibed on a lot of stuff, not only with with the drumming side of things, but also planning for your retirement and thinking about the future, which is something that, one, I stress all the time, and two, I'm actually going to be developing a lot more content around that here in 2020. And if you're into that kind of stuff, follow me on social. There's some stuff happening on social. I think I'm combining all of my accounts under one roof, uh, but follow along at Drummers Resource or at the Nick Rafini. You can check all that stuff out. Until the next episode, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. 550. Thank you for being here. And here's the 550 more. Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Rafini. That's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out RevoiceMedia.com. Peace.